All right, good to see you here today. Thank you. That, it's so good to, to sing those hymns. Uh, we don't always do that, and uh, they're just, they're beautiful. They have such a rich theology in them. It's great to, to sing those. Um, if you want to open your Bible to Joshua chapter 3, we'll start there today. Uh, my son Ezra is in fourth grade, and in his fourth grade social studies class, he is doing a research report on the American Revolution. And so he was tasked with picking an iconic event that happened in that time period and learning all about it and presenting it to the class. And so he picked the Boston Tea Party, uh, which is one of my favorite events from childhood. And, um, and so I will like, help our children with homework. I'm usually not like, super into it especially the way they do math now, and like I just, but like this I'm like excited about. I'm like, I, I would, might even do this project for him, like Boston Tea Party, this is great. So like every Tuesday for like the last month, he was kind of like doing a little bit more and like knocking out some of the research on this, and Ezra's learning so much about um, all the different terms like from that, if you remember back to your old social studies class, um, learning about like the, uh, the Sons of Liberty And these names that were a part of the Sons of Liberty, like Sam Adams and John Hancock and Paul Revere and a guy named Benedict Arnold, who was in that group as well. And uh, learning about, you know, like kind of the credo of the Sons of Liberty was no taxation without representation. And there's this whole Townsend Act that happened over in British Parliament that kind of set all of this in motion. And what we know is like the, the Boston Tea Party intensifies like the conflict and kind of leads us to... Revolutionary War, and so I like I'm reading it. It's interesting, and I'm asking Ezra, like, what from all this? Like, what have you learned? And he's like, Well, I now know how the New England Patriots got their name. (laughs) You know, like everything for him is football, like that. uh, Oh, you like connected that dot? Great. And but like one of the things is we're like doing this research. I came across this quote from John Adams. John Adams, I know him. That little man, you know. Uh, John Adams, but he, speaking of this iconic event, says this. This is the most magnificent movement of all. There is a dignity, a majesty, a sublimity in this last effort of the patriots that I greatly admire. The people should never rise without doing something to be remembered, something notable and striking. This destruction of the tea is so bold, so daring, so firm, intrepid and inflexible, and it must have some important consequences, and so lasting that I can't but consider it as an epic in history, an epoch in history. This is what John Adams says of this event. It's this iconic event that so much of like the culture of this country kind of comes out of all the things that are going on around it. And I bring that up, this iconic event, Because the story that we're looking at today is an iconic event in the history of the people of Israel. It's this iconic event in this Old Testament. And it's full of characters and phrases and terms that that they memorialize and they remember and they look back on. And it was a time where God does something that for them could, the only way they, they, they would figure it out is if God shows up and does something miraculous, and God shows up and he does something miraculous, and they remember this, they write about it, they write songs about it, they look back at this point, and they know this isn't the only event in our history, but this is one of those pivotal, iconic moments that we remember. And that story is found in Joshua 3, and the people of God 
have been, uh, if you've been following the last few weeks at this point, they, they're camped out on the, the east bank of the Jordan River. Moses is dead. They've been wandering in the wilderness for like 40 years after they left Egypt. They have this destination, the promised land that they've been longing to get to. But what stands between them and this promised land is the Jordan River. Uh, something that is, uh, uh, they're unable to cross is this obstacle that they can't get through. And they're hanging out on the east side of this river, waiting to figure out what's next. And they know that God says, get ready to cross. We're going into the promised land. The story picks up in Joshua 3. First one, it says, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before the crossing. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. And they said this, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. But keep a a distance of about 2,000 cubits, I think that's about 1,000 meters between you and the ark. Do not go near it. And then Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Other translations say wonderful things. Tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Can you imagine hearing this if you were the people of Israel? that Joshua would get up and and promise this. Tomorrow, God is going to do something amazing. Like, they've been waiting for this for so long. They've been waiting for 40 years. They've heard stories of God doing wonderful things. They've experienced some of them. But for Joshua to say this, tomorrow, get ready. Something amazing is going to happen. The anticipation of that, Like going to sleep that night, these people, the anxiety that that would bring, the excitement, the hope, tomorrow's a new day, something brand new is going to happen, and it's going to be marvelous and wonderful. All of their sensors would have been on high alert. What is God about to do? He's about to do something amazing. And here's how the story continues. Verse 6, it says, Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and they went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Now when they say this to to Joshua, it's not to like inflate his ego. This is about a credibility thing, letting people know God's with Joshua the same way he's with Moses. Verse 8. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you know, you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, everything but the termites. Leave that to the people in Phoenix. See the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, will go into the Jordan ahead of you. 
Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at a flood stage all during harvest. This is an important detail. Not only is this river like an obstacle that they can't get through, this is the absolutely worst time to cross this river. Like if you would look at the Jordan River today, like it it wouldn't look very daunting. It's been like dammed up for different purposes. But back in the ancient world, uh, it was was a very dangerous uh, river, especially in times of during the harvest that would be the flood stage. So it's not just this babbling brook, it's, it's fast flowing. It would have had swelling currents, um, could be 10 to 12 feet deep in some parts. And remember, uh, this is a tribe of people with children and with livestock, and they, you know, they probably don't know how to swim. Um, they, 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 to build rafts would take forever to get this many people across. There's not the engineering for bridge building. Um, and so not only is this like an insurmountable obstacle, it's also uh, the worst time to try to cross this river. The story goes on, yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon, while the flowing, water flowing down to the sea, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite of Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. How did the people get to the land of promise? God does something miraculous. He dams up the river. He stops the river flow. For them, it would have had this like eerie echo of the story of the Exodus getting out of Egypt when God parts the waters and they pass through out of the, their slavery and all the things that enslave them get washed away. And here the waters stop and they pass through into the promises of God. Something miraculous, amazing, and wonderful. Something that couldn't have happened unless God does it, unless God makes it happen. God does it in unbelievable ways. Now, when you read a story like this, the tendency is, and, and, and we all do this, and some of this is okay to say, you know, how do, what does this mean for my life? Like, how do I apply this into, you know, what I'm going through? Like, what are my rivers that I need to cross or, the un, you know, the obstacles I can't get through? And some of that's okay. But sometimes we move too quickly into uh, trying to apply that to, to what we're going through. Like, what... What's significant here is that this story isn't just about the people. This is a story about God. Scripture is telling us something about God here that I don't want to miss. He's telling us something um, about how God works, about the ways of God, about how God takes groups of people and invites them into a promise. This is a scripture that's about God first and foremost. And so when we look at what God does, what we find is, is really when God is about to do amazing things, in people, he calls people to certain things, to certain actions or to certain inactions. And what you find here is a number of 
of actions that, that he invites the people of Israel into. Before this miraculous thing happens, there's a few things that he does. The first is that he invites them to leave their place of shame, of shame. So I brought this up last week. The, the, it says that they're, they're in this town called Shatim. And Shatim for them would have been a, a place of embarrassment. In the Exodus story, uh, when they leave Egypt and they're wandering around the wilderness, this is a place where uh, the men of Israel um, run into these Moabite women and this thing happens that is incredibly controversial and embarrassing for them. And it, it, this place is always kind of associated with that story. And so... When Joshua, the book of Joshua opens up, the people who are getting ready to go into the land of promise are still camped out in this place where they experience great shame and embarrassment. And God has them leaving that place, leaving the place of shame. And this is what, what God does. This is what Jesus invites us into. He, he goes into our stories that are embarrassing and shameful, the worst things about ourselves. And what we see, like with the life of Jesus, he loves us. He meets us in our place. He loves us exactly as we are, but he always, he loves us so much, he always invites us into a new way of life. We see this with like Zacchaeus, with the woman at the well. He meets people where they're at, but he loves them so much, he invites them to leave that place into a new life, a new life in him, a, a, a turning of those old ways, a turning of those things that has caused us shame, a turning of, away from those things that has ruined relationships into a new life of promise. Jesus does that, and God tends to do that. He invites us to a new place, leaving the old. And then the second thing is, uh, we're, they're told to, to look towards the ark. And I, I would say this, so they, they leave the place of shame, but then God also tells them to focus wholly and exclusively on his presence. The ark of the covenant the Ark of the Covenant was a place where the Lord's presence resided. It was this outward, outward sign, this visible sign of the presence of God. And, and in the Ark of the Covenant was this gold box that represented their, their story um, of, of leaving Egypt and this new covenant that was made at Sinai. They have put the Ten Commandments into this ark, they put some of the other um, elements that remind them of their time in the wilderness in this ark, and it was this place where God's presence resided. And God tells them, as we go to the river, he doesn't lay out the plan, he doesn't tell them how it's going to happen, but he says to look towards the ark and to follow it and to stand at a distance because if you've ever watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, you know what happens when you open it. I don't know if that's what happens. So, but... They, they're, they're told to stay about 1,000 feet back, and I think that's because everyone can see. There's this acknowledgement that this thing is, is powerful. Let's give it space, but then also let everyone see what is about to happen. And the ark goes forward, and it tells us that it goes to a path that they've never been through before, and it guides them to the river. During flood season, during this uh, difficult time, they're told not to focus on the obstacle, but to focus on the ark. To focus on the ark, not the river. To focus on the presence of God, not the surroundings of what's going on. This plan might seem improbable. It might not make sense logistically, but keep your eyes on the presence of God. There's that old song, uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look, hold to his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim 
Like we, we, we fix our eyes on the presence of God, not on just the things that we're going through, not just on our surroundings. And when God is about to do something amazing, this is what the call is. Focus on the presence of God. And then he says to consecrate themselves. And consecrate sounds like this big churchy word, because it is a big churchy word. Um, but what, what this means is, like, to consecrate was to something that would be set apart or made holy. Uh, and he invites them to, to set themselves apart. He's about to do something big, and he doesn't want them to miss it. And he doesn't want them to be hindered by the things of this world. He says, set this time as, as a time of, of, of holy and sacred separation from all the things that, of, that this world that can corrupt and all the things that can hinder this relationship with God. They're called to consecrate and sanctify themselves. We see this in Exodus chapter 19 at Mount Sinai, right before the, the Ten Commandments come down, is a time of consecration. It's this washing of themselves to purify. It's this inner focus, this renewed dependence on God, not on their own strength, but on God, because they're about to have this totally new experience. Now, we know, like, you know, as good Christians, like, we're made clean because of Jesus. We're, we're, we're saved because of the cross and, and the resurrection of Jesus when he defeats sin. That was the work that's been done for us. But there's also this work that God is doing in us that is a time, of, it's, a, it's a renewal that goes on inside of us. And, like, I know, like, I've, I've given my heart to Jesus. I've been forgiven of sin and I'm going to watch the Cardinals game and say all sorts of terrible things about the Cowboys this afternoon, right? But there's, there's a continual work that happens inside of us, this consecration where we, we, we have seasons especially where we just long and we hunger for the presence of God and the ways of God. We want to open ourselves up to be uh, just available to what God is doing. And I think that's what's going on here. They are making themselves available first and foremost to God. They're dependent wholly on God in this time, consecrated before him. I wonder when the last time we, that, that you were intentional about that, that, that we've been intentional to say, we want to go through this season of consecration, this time of, of, of renewal, of, of, of cleaning um, in our soul, of stopping and slowing down and saying, Lord, come in, do some work in me. Psalm 51 is a good way to guide us through this process. It says, create in me a pure heart, O God. Some translations say, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Like asking for this pure heart, this clean heart that God would come in and cleanse there's this longing for the joy of our salvation. If you remember that, that moment of salvation, like where like you feel so alive, so on fire, that, that, that everything just feels tangible about the presence of God, that this would be a time where the joy of our salvation, we would just be awakened and open to the things of God. Our sensors would be heightened to, to something that God is about to do, that he would do wonderful things in our lives. He says to consecrate themselves. And then this fourth thing is to, to take action one step at a time. To take action one step at a time. The priests have to take the first steps. So they get to this river's edge. 
They don't know, like God doesn't like tell them all the details of the plan. Um, God doesn't say, here's exactly what's going to happen. There's an actual step of faith for them. And these priests, I don't know if they can swim. They're carrying this really heavy box that if it opens, it's going to melt everyone's face like Indiana Jones. This is a dangerous moment. And they take steps. They walk out into the river. And what happens next is God shows up. They take steps, even though information is held back. But when they take steps, God shows up and does something amazing. Uh, My office, or the whole staff, our office is in the old rancher's house on this property. This used to be a horse ranch. And uh, a family used to live in that house over there that we now office out of. Um, My office is in the master bedroom. And at night, it gets really creepy. Like, I... I'm not like afraid of the dark, but when I'm in that house, I'm afraid of the dark at night. And we have scrolls that are on the roof. They throw nuts at each other, and there's always noise going on. We joke that it's haunted. We kind of, that's like a comic relief because it's super creepy at nighttime. Um, The way that our office, uh, the lighting works in there is that you turn on all the lights at the end of the office down by my side. And when I leave, I turn those off, and I have to walk through the darkness all the way through the whole house to get to the other side to where the door is. I don't know why we haven't figured out how to change the lighting in there, but there's a sensor that once you get far enough down near the door, the sensor kicks on. And I always think of like sensor lights remind me of faith. So like you turn off the light and I walk through the darkness knowing if I just keep walking and keep taking steps, at some point the light's going to come on and illuminate everything that's around me. I just have to get there. I have to just walk through the darkness for a bit. There's a big step that people always trip over. We put a red piece of tape on the step. It doesn't work. People still trip. And so, like, walking through the darkness, I know, just take a next step, next step slowly, and at some point, everything will make sense. The light will turn on, and that happens. I think the same thing is, like, our walk with God. Like, we're not always told all the information. We're not always told the plan. Uh, We're not always um, given the whole map of everything. Like, life with dependency on God, he just invites us to take the next step into obedience with him to what he's up to. And as we step into those places of uncertainty, the light comes on. And it's the same thing here with these priests. As they go into the water, they take steps out into the river, this fast-flowing river. And as they get into the river, the, the river keeps up upstream, and it stops flowing, and it dries up, and the entire nation moves across into the promised land. They take a step of action, one at a time. Take next step, next step. Okay, so what is, what is, if this is a story of, this iconic story about the people of God, that they memorialize, that they write songs about it. Like for them, this was deliverance into this promised land. Um, what does it mean for us? And if it, if it does have lessons for us, and lessons about God, what are they? Um, I think this, that, What God is teaching us about himself here, when he takes groups of people and moves them into a promised future, God will move in inopportune times because his deeper purpose is to develop our trust in him. Like God invites his people to do things that don't make any sense, that do things that seem like to go through obstacles that are insurmountable for his mission, but the goal isn't like to, to get to the place. The goal is what he's doing inside of us and our relationship with him. 
It's not about necessarily what we're doing. It's about who we're becoming in the process. And he just happens to use events like this that are iconic, that are amazing, that are miraculous, to develop a deeper trust and relationship that we have with him. He invites us into this deeper relationship. The second thing is that as we are faithful to God's call on our lives, we discover how his power is at work in us. When we are faithful, when we are obedient to the things that he calls to, we discover that there's, there's, he's doing something in us that, that is attached to eternity, that is attached to his supernatural power, that our lives here on earth take on new and incredible meaning because he is at work in us. And we find that in faithfulness to him. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It talks about how we're being conformed into his image and into the, the people that he's designed us to be. God moves in opportune times because he has deeper purposes for us. It's about who we're becoming in the process. And as we are faithful, we start to discover that power in us. God is at work doing something amazing. Um, a commentator on this passage writes this about the lessons of this iconic story. David Jackman, in his commentary, says, These verses may well challenge us to some profound reassessments of our daily discipleship, especially in our instant generation, where we want everything sorted out and guaranteed before we start. Perhaps this is why wonderful manifestations of God's glory are comparatively rare among us. This chapter reminds us that we are not writing the agenda That is the Lord's prerogative. What he requires from us is obedience that desires his glory rather than our own and is content to fulfill whatever role he is pleased to assign us. I love that line. What what he requires from us is obedience that desires his glory rather than our own and is content to fulfill whatever role he he is pleased to assign us. If we had the anticipation that God is going to do something wonderful and amazing in our lives, that we lived with this holy anticipation that God is doing something, God is on the move, it would have ramifications for us personally, have ramifications for us as a church community. We shared in week one, coming back from sabbatical, some, some things I'd love to see in this next season of ministry for the church, whether it's the next seven to ten years, um, and the first is that just that we would have this deeper experience with God as his people, that we would consecrate ourselves, that we would long uh, for, for uh, us to limit all the distractions and things that, that keep us and hinder us from what God has, that, that that is done through prayer, that is done through being intentional about the presence of God in our lives, and that we would have a hunger for that. And from that deep experience, God would just uh, meet us in this place. And the second thing is, uh, as, as our church has has grown. Um, we're sitting on nine acres of land here, and uh, we've built on about four and a half of them, and we're stewards of this property. And uh, we're reminded this Wednesday night, as we had all of our groups and, and, and children here, that we're out of room. And our next steps is uh, to, to maximize this property as stewards of it, uh, to expand our reach in this community. Our next steps is to put in this children's wing. 
And so for us, that's going to be a step of faith. That's going to be um, a stretching us. And, and, but we also believe that, that what God is up to here um, is, is uh, just more, more people that uh, would get to experience this message. And, um, and this property would, would flourish. Um, so on October 18th, we're having our vision night to, to share a little bit about those plans. Uh, we, we're out of room for uh, our children's ministry, and we feel like if uh, the next thing would be uh, creating more space for, for children uh, to experience uh, who Jesus is in an environment that is welcoming and safe, and that they're not crammed into uh, rooms. Um, and so we'll be sharing more about that on Wednesday the 18th. would love for you to be there. And then uh, the third thing is just uh, to, to live life with an urgency of multiplication, that, that what we're doing and what our message is, we want more and more people to hear it. This, this is a term you might say evangelism, that multiplying um, the disciples here, reaching more and more people, um, that we would, would live life with the urgency of the church in the book of Acts, that our lives would be missional, um, that we would be on the offensive as a church in a, a, a place uh, that there's a lot of darkness, um, that we would be people of light that our lives would have meaning as it's in line with the heart of God, um, that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against God's church. We're this local expression of that, and we want to be a missional people in this place. I believe that God is up to something good, and we've seen that, and that he will continue to do wonderful things, that we would be, uh, have our sensors heightened, alert, ready for what he's up to. I want to close our time with um, just an examine when it comes to uh, these things that God invites his people to, here are some questions to reflect on. Maybe it's for your life, maybe it's for your family, maybe it's for um, the body of Christ here in this place. But what is it that you need to leave behind? To, to have this awareness of what God's doing, to, to be invited into the promises of God. What do you need to leave behind? Maybe it's this place of shame. Maybe it's things that uh, corrupt your soul. There are things that you need to, to stop doing. But what is it that you need to leave behind to move in to the promises of God? What do you need to re do to refocus on God? To, to keep your eyes on him, to follow him, not everything else that's going on around you. Maybe it's limiting distractions. Maybe it's being intentional through prayer. What do you need to do to refocus your eyes on the presence of God? And when was the last time you consecrated yourself before God? To, to be intentional to say, Lord, create in me a pure heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And what action do you need to take to step out in faith? That you know that, that God is inviting you into a calling, and obediently you need to follow. Taking steps of faith, even with uncertainty, not knowing where it's heading. What action do you need to take that's tangible to live out your faith? I'm going to close with this prayer from Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, uh, verse three, chapter 3, verse 2. It says this, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. I think that the people of Israel camped out on the east side of the Jordan 
anticipating God to move. They had heard stories of what God did when their parents left Egypt, when he parted the Red Sea, and God repeats it in their day. This is the same God that works in our life, the same God that moves ahead of us and invites us into his promises, and that our prayer would be that, Lord, you would continue to do that here and now, something that only you can get credit for in our lives, in our church. We're going to close our time with uh, a time of prayer. And as we could take those questions and reflect on them, we have a few things. We're getting back into the rhythm of, uh, co- of communion. Um, and the fourth Sunday here, uh, we have communion available, uh, but we'd also just want to create space for you to respond to God how you feel comfortable doing. Uh, maybe for you, it's just sitting and listening to the words of this song. Um, we also have a prayer wall over here by the cross. Maybe you just need to, to write out your prayers and place them in the prayer wall. Maybe it's a, a response to those reflection questions as you just examine uh, your soul. Um, we also have communion set up here if you would like to partake in communion. Uh, communion for us um, represents this story, this gospel story of, of what Jesus has done. That on the cross, uh, Jesus broke his body open, and on the cross, his blood was poured out and shed. And from that, death and sin is conquered. And from that, we are invited uh, to a life of eternity with him. When we come to communion, we remember that. This is something that we remember, part of, part of this great story that we're a part of, of God's victory that's won on the cross. So we invite you to remember to come to the communion table and also to proclaim. So I'm going to pray, and then when you're ready, feel free. If you want to move about the room, if you want to pray, if you need someone to pray with, I'll be up here as well. Uh, but let's take some time and just uh, reflect on the, the, this passage. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us. We're grateful for these old stories of Scripture that take place thousands of years ago. But we see how you move through your people in ways that reveal your purposes. And Lord, I ask that today, in this place, in Phoenix, Arizona, we would just have a heightened sense of awareness of what you're up to. That our soul would be sensitive to be sensitive to your work, that you desire an intimate relationship with us, Lord. You invite us out of a life of shame. You invite us to trust you. Lord, that we wouldn't just go through this life apathetic to who you are and what you're up to but you would fill our lives with great meaning and purpose. Lord, we ask for wisdom and discernment. We ask that you would meet us here, that you would stir us to greater things. So we give you this time today, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.